Welcome to the Paracel podcast. I am Alberto Grignolo, Corporate Vice President at Paracel, and this is episode three of our podcast series. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down for an extended conversation with two of my colleagues, Dr. Cy Pretorius, Paracel's Executive Vice President and Chief Medical and Scientific Officer, and Ros Round, Director of Paracel's Patient Innovation Center. We talked about a very important topic, and that is how to bridge the gap between the scientific needs of research and development and the needs of patients, an increasingly important topic in these days of intense and global clinical research. The learnings that I gathered from this conversation, and you will hear much more about those in a few minutes, is that, for one thing, we conducted a survey of 1,000 adults on their views of clinical trials. We learned about the fact that some clinical trials are very inconvenient for patients and that the emergence of a new concept, virtual trials, may actually make clinical research more convenient for patients and increase their willingness to participate. And finally, we talked about how to make clinical research more patient-centric, and to that end, we'll hear about five techniques that are being adopted to increase that patient centricity. Also in the podcast, you will hear Roz interview a Paracel employee and cancer survivor about her participation in clinical trials. And now, here's the full conversation. Enjoy. Thank you both for joining me today, and uh, let's get started. Sai, if I may direct the first question to you. You've been at Paracel for over 20 years, and you lead Paracel's medical and scientific services team. Tell me a little bit about your background. Thank you, Alberto. Delighted to be here, and it's, of course, a topic that all of us, including myself, are really passionate about. So I studied medicine because I care about people and about patients, and I wanted to make a difference in their lives. In medical school, I became truly fascinated with pharmacology. To me, it was and still is amazing that we administer these small amounts of a chemical or a biologic or nowadays cells, and by doing so, have such a profound impact on the physiology and on disease in general. So I joined the drug development industry and have been pursuing my passion for several decades now, learning something new every day and, and hopefully impacting the lives of patients in a positive way. Thank you, Sai. Roz, you've been at Paracel since 2013. What has your career journey been like? Uh, thanks, Alberto. So I used to work in the gynecologic oncology clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital, and it was really interesting to me when I worked there to see how varied it was in terms of what patients wanted to know about their disease. The information needs of these patients was so broad, um, and that's really what sparked my interest in the industry. So from there, I got into um, roles where I was looking at um, how can we educate patients better, how can we provide them with materials that mean something to them that they can understand, and how can we just educate them better. Uh, then I moved into more of the patient recruitment side of things um, and some of the technologies that we've seen in that area in recent years got me um, on the innovation track. So I'm loving the job that I have now here at Paracel because it combines that piece about educating patients, raising awareness with the innovation and it's just a great way to spend my days. That's terrific. I feel the enthusiasm coming from both of you, so I thank you for that. So listening to your backgrounds, it's easy to see that you have a lot of drive to improve the outlook for patients. So one question that's been on my mind is about patient centricity, uh, the term patient centricity particularly. This has become a bit of a buzzword in the life sciences industry in recent years, so 
Can you explain what the term means exactly? Raj, perhaps you could go first. Absolutely, yes. Yes, it has become a bit of a buzz phrase, I would agree. Um, but I think although there's no universal definition across the industry about exactly what patient centricity is, the essence of it, I think, is, is agreed upon. So it's all about putting patients at the heart or at the centre of the way that we operate, um, thinking in quite a practical way about their needs and their experience, and really taking that kind of empathetic human approach to solving particular challenges for them in studies. Um, so I think as an industry, we've made quite a bit of progress in the last couple of years. As you say, everyone's talking about patient centricity now. Um, but I think we can always do more. So that's part of what we do in the Patient Innovation Centre is a look at how can we improve things? What's next? How can we leverage technology? How can we bring patients in in different ways to make their experiences better? Um, and I think the whole thing's gaining momentum, which is really exciting. Um, and it's becoming more of a standard way of doing things rather than purely being in small pockets or being seen as something that's really new. Have we moved from a time in which people were wondering what is patient centricity and why should we do it? to a time now where, okay, let's do it. Yeah, so I think we've gone from wondering what it is, maybe even two years ago, I used to go into client meetings often and it was a revelation that we were talking about patient centricity. I think now we're more in the, how do we do it? So there's not really a consistent approach. There's not con like there is no consistent um, definition. There's not consistent approach across um, different sponsors and, um, and other stakeholders. So I think we're at that stage now where everyone's agreed it's the right thing to do. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but we're now we're working through how collectively we can build this into a standard practice. Sally, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, I, I would like to add to what Ross said that this increasing patient focus is showing, showing uh, early benefits industry-wide. Um, we were very fortunate to be part of a recent report called the Innovation Imperative that was released by the Economist Intelligence Unit and commissioned by Parkcell. And as part of this report, we found that drugs developed uh, across the industry using a, a fairly significant sample size of studies that used or leveraged patient-centric designs had faster study enrollment times and were a lot more likely to be exact, 19% more likely to be launched to the market compared to studies and drugs that did not use a patient-centric approach. I think what is equally surprising, or at least to me, but I believe more broadly, is that the adoption of these innovations, in particular patient centricity, was very, very low, only about 5% or so of the phase two and three trials uh, that were studied during this, uh, during this project uh, employed a patient-centric approach. So there's, to Ross's point, there's, a, there's been movement, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, might it be fair to say that in order to do this work, this patient-centric work that we're discussing, we should first understand what patients actually want. So uh, in that context and to that end, we as Parkcell conducted a survey of 1,000 adults in the U.S., ages 18 to 65 plus, to find out more about their views on and perceptions of clinical trials. The survey garnered some interesting findings. One that stood out to me in particular was that 77% of these individuals feel that patients should be more involved in clinical trials than they are today. Sai, I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on that finding in particular? I'm delighted to hear about this finding, Alberta, and it's, it's encouraging because as an industry, we do need many more patients to be aware of and to be involved in clinical trials in order for us as an industry to advance new and exciting therapies. The historical lack of participation, and you know, as far as I know, the last data I saw, less than 5% of cancer patients, for example, participate in clinical trials, have been a huge hurdle for us as an industry in the development of new drugs. 
this renewed industry attention to patient centricity and to being more focused on the patient is largely driven by this big lack of historical patient participation. It's actually a bit staggering, to me at least, to realize that despite all of the work that has been done for decades in clinical research and clinical trials, most people who could do so have not participated in a clinical trial. Again, let me stay with you, Sai. Why do you think that is? I think, or you know, my sense is that many patients probably do not participate because they're often not sure what the process entails, the process of participation, so it's an unknown, or they're not sure how to participate, or they're simply not aware, Alberto, of clinical trials that are relevant to them and their specific disease. So in addition to that, I think the, the pure burden associated with participating in these clinical trials is often a deterrent to patients. Burden. Now, that's a big word. Raz, uh, let me turn to you. Uh, is there anything that the industry and the clinical trial enterprise in general can do to reduce this burden? And what is this burden? Absolutely, yes. Um, so the burden of participation is, well, it's mostly about being practical. I think often when traditionally trials are being designed, we're kind of blindly almost following the science and not necessarily thinking about the impact on patients on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, one of the key pieces around this for me is to really look at how we can conduct trials that work for patients. So um, not just looking at that scientific question and following it through, it's thinking, okay, if we added this exploratory endpoint, for example, what would the impact then be on the patient and the amount of time they have to have at the site? How can we um, look at maybe the distance that they have to travel and how can we maybe provide a, a patient transportation service if that's a challenge for them? And it's really looking at that study design phase, taking the human element into the design and trying to identify proactively what the practical challenges could be and from the very beginning either adjust the protocol or put in place different tactics that can just reduce those challenges for patients on a day-to-day -day basis. Fair to say that people that have designed clinical protocols for decades have not mm, seen the protocol design necessarily from the patient's practical point of view? I think so, but I think maybe people just haven't asked them to before. It's not been something that's been, been asked of them, so they've been doing exactly the job that they, would, they were there to do. Um, but as we've got this shift and patients are becoming more empowered, um, they're taking ownership of their disease and their treatment options. And so we as an industry need to shift and we need to be able to, to work in the right way that's going to engage these patients and keep them engaged in clinical research. Another encouraging finding in the survey was that participants ranked the potential to improve treatments for others in the future as the most valuable benefit of participating in clinical trials. Sai is a physician. What, what does that say to you, that finding? Well, once again, Alberto, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that patients have, uh, you know, altruistic reasons for wanting to participate. Frankly, this gives me hope for us as a society. If most of us are inclined to participate to help others, then we'll ultimately also help ourselves because in the end, at some point, we are all patients, you know, or we have close family or friends that are patients. Right. Roz, what is your view on that? Oh, what a fabulous response from all these survey participants. Um, it's something that we hear consistently, actually. Uh, patients, obviously, when they join a clinical trial, are usually hoping that we'll have some kind of a positive impact on them and their disease. But I think knowing that it can help other patients, too, can be very, very motivating. Outside of their altruistic intentions, if you will, the survey participants reported not having the time and they cited the inconvenience of having to go to a physical location as two of the key factors that prevent them from enrolling in a trial from a practical point of view. But 
they noted that the ability to participate in a study from home was actually a key incentive that would encourage them to participate. Roz, is this something that is becoming more commonplace? Um, well, in terms of participating from home being rated highly, I think, again, that really aligns with what we're seeing. There's a shift in the industry towards this interest in virtual trials, sometimes called remote or decentralized trials. Um, it's all about convenience, really. So what can we do to take all or part of the study to patients in their home to make participation simpler? People are used to convenience in life now, so they can have their food delivered to their door with their weekly shop. They can have their clothes delivered to their door. They don't necessarily have to go out. They can use apps for tracking spending and all kinds of other wonderful things. So it makes sense that they want that kind of more convenient experience from trial participation too. Um, so I think by by enabling that, by using technology and in-home services to support patients in that desire, we can reduce the geographical and the financial and also the practical barriers of participating in trials and really build the study around the needs of the patients. So to me, it's the absolute epitome of patient centricity. In the survey, participants did know that they are comfortable participating in virtual trials where all or part of a study is delivered to them in their homes using a combination of technology and home health care services, 71% actually said that they would participate in trials that use technology such as sensors. With many patients finding these virtual trials more attractive than traditional models, it's safe to say that their importance to the industry will only grow. Uh, Roz, can you share more about what the benefits of these trials are and how Paracel is enabling virtual trials? Absolutely. Yes. So I kind of briefly mentioned them before. There are three things that we tend to talk about in the scheme of virtual trials and the positive impact on patients. So we look at how they're reducing firstly the geographical barriers. So for example, particularly in rare diseases where patients are broadly geographically dispersed, they may live too far from the site or not have um, transportation available, for example, to be able to go to the clinic. So by taking some or all of the study to them in their homes, that opens up a clinical research opportunity for them. Then we talk about the financial barriers. So not everybody can afford to take time off work to join a trial, or they might not be able to afford parking at the hospital. Anyone from England listening will know how expensive it is to park in a UK hospital. Um, and um, so looking at those financial pieces and what we can maybe do to alleviate that in the scheme of an overall trial cost, it's very, very small. Um, and also the practical barriers. So a lot of the feedback that we've had in the past is things like, okay, my child, child A is sick. I want them in this trial, but what about child B and the childcare? And how am I going to organize my life when I have so many other things going on as well as this illness um, in our family? Or they might have a busy professional life and not be able to leave work. They might not have a caregiver to come with them to a visit. So really it's that geographical, financial and practical barrier piece that we're looking at alleviating. Um, and we know as well that about 80% of studies have been delayed due to recruitment problems. 85% failed to retain enough patients. So the drug development process continues to become more and more complex. The cost is skyrocketing. Um, so it's kind of common sense, really. If we can make things easier for patients um, and shift more of the study to them in the comfort of their own home, it can only positively impact both recruitment and retention and also in turn alleviate some of the challenges that our sponsors experience too. Um, I think it's important to note as well, though, that there's so much talk about virtual trials in the industry at the moment. But in terms of adoption, I think we're still in the earlier stages. So it's we're seeing the momentum slowly starting to build. Um, we partner with a number of sponsors at the moment in fully virtual and hybrid studies, and we continue to grow the portfolio, the expertise. Um, and I think it's important to think about the technology enablers, and we have that experience with sensors and apps and things. But for patients, they the technology does need to enable them almost to 
maintain the human contact. So just giving them an app is not going to keep them engaged in a study, but giving them an app where, for example, they can have an on-demand telehealth visit with the site staff if they have a question is actually really engaging. So it's thinking about how we use that technology um, and how we improve that experience. And we're really embracing this approach and leading the way in the industry now. Sai, your point of view? I think Ros said it very well, Alberto, and I, I agree with what she said. Convenience is definitely key in this digital era, not, not just in healthcare, but in general. And if we want to encourage, as an industry, patients to participate in clinical trials, we need to make it easier for them to participate. And in order to do that, we need to leverage modern technology where appropriate to bring these clinical trials to patients, as opposed to traditionally bringing patients to clinical trials. I also think Ross pointed out a very important nuance, which is the social value that is often associated with participating in clinical trials. And so, you know, want to be mindful not to make it completely digital and virtual, you know, give the opportunity for these social, social interactions either in person or by leveraging technology. So very interesting. Now, beyond addressing geographic hurdles and time hurdles with virtual trials, Roz, let me ask you, in your view, how is the industry doing in understanding patients' other needs? So honestly, I'd say that things are a little bit variable right now. So some sponsors and CROs are partnering with advocacy groups and individual patients to understand their needs, and some aren't. Um, some teams within sponsors are partnering with patients on some studies and not on others. So what I'd really like to see is just consistency across the industry where partnering with patients just becomes the way that we work. And really, the sooner the better. Without a doubt. Right. Sai, your thoughts? It's a good question you asked, Alberta. To me, it's, it's somewhat ironic that for several decades, many of us, and I include myself in that, in the industry, we're devoting our lives to improving the lives of patients but we left patients completely out of the process, which is where the irony comes in. With this renewed focus on patient centricity, combined with the fact that our patients are becoming all the more educated. They are uh, you know, knowledgeable about their condition, uh, in large part thanks to the availability of information and technology advances. Patients now play a central role in the development of new therapies, and that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. So this far, we've talked about the practicalities of virtual trials, the patient motivations in participating in clinical trials, and actually the business impact of using patient-centric trials as innovations. So we'll come back after a short break. In our next segment, we'll talk a little bit about stigmas associated with clinical trials. This is something we're all undoubtedly familiar with. According to the survey we conducted, one of the biggest stigmas around clinical trials is that patients don't have any say in their treatment. Participants also reported not understanding how to participate as one of the top barriers that would prevent them from enrolling in a trial. Sai, let me ask you first, do you have any thoughts on removing the stigma? Yeah, the stigma clearly shows, Alberto, that as an industry, and I'm also pointing the finger towards myself as an industry, We've not really done a good job in educating and informing our patients about clinical trials. The truth is that the patients have the ultimate say. As an industry and as a treating physician, we cannot and I cannot do anything to a, a patient in a clinical trial without their consent. And this has been the case since the end of the Second World War and the declaration of Helsinki. Yes. And one of the key themes in that declaration is the notion of informed consent. So the patient has the ultimate say. As part of the informed consent process, 
the patient typically reviews the details and the information in terms of what, what is expected, what's going to happen to them and, you know, and along with them during the course of the clinical trial. They typically receive this document for review and it, this document needs to be written in a manner that is understandable and the uh, institutional review boards or ethics committees in the other parts of the world review and approve these documents and the language that was used to ensure that this is easily un understandable to the normal person that is maybe not medically educated. So that's an important part. Uh, in addition to that, the patient will have access to a physician or equivalent if they participate in a clinical trial to further explain the clinical trial, the procedures, and, and of course also answer any questions that a patient may have. Most importantly, patients should be aware that they are able to withdraw their consent and participate at any point during the study. So they, they do ultimately have the say in terms of participation. Roz, your view? So I think by continuing to partner with patients, we can hopefully help to remove some of the stigma. And I think in terms of understanding how to participate, it's something we've worked really hard on in the last few years to improve. So things like um, deploying literacy and health literacy guidelines when we're creating information tools for patients. Um, to Sai's point about the informed consent process, providing sites with things like flip charts or simple short videos that explain the contents of the ICF form. We know that they are long and complex, so breaking it down for the patients so that they're getting the key things that they need to know to make the right decision. Um, also in Europe, there's a group called UPATI, and they've created training for patients to create these patient experts that can be partners in the drug development process and have these um, kind of equal discussions where they feel that they're educated enough in clinical research to be able to provide that input. Um, but none of those things that I'm talking about are really very complex. They're not expensive things. It's really just a mindset shift. Um, so I think it's about asking people to put themselves in the shoes of the patient and just think across every step when they're in a trial and what we can do to just simplify things, make it easier for patients. What a great conversation we've just had. Before we go, I'd like to ask you one final question. Patient centricity seems like a very lofty goal. How can those involved in drug development make clinical research more patient-centric? Roz? So I've got a top five to share with you. Okay. Um, so the first one is um, similar to my last point. Don't assume that budget or time will be a barrier to implementing in these strategies. So making life easier for patients doesn't have to be a really expensive cumbersome, time-consuming piece, sometimes some of the simplest changes can have the biggest impact for patients. So don't be overwhelmed, I guess. Um, secondly, I'd say if you see something within your organization that you think could help improve the patient experience, just speak up. You don't have to wait for some big organizational initiative to happen before you can have a positive impact. Just think about it within your role. Um, and then start thinking about how you can improve the patient experience from within your day-to-day -day tasks, I think, is number three. So you might be in data management or clinical science or somewhere else. Um, but being part of an industry that helps develop new drugs to help patients is really exciting. Um, but sometimes when we're caught up in the day-to-day -day tasks, it can be easy to forget that. Um, sometimes if your role's not directly related to a patient, then it's not at the forefront of your mind. So we, we will continue to do a better job, hopefully, of engaging our staff and, and them viewing that in their everyday experiences. Um, I think number four, sharing the data that we've talked about today and the feedback with your colleagues so that they can clear, see the clear evidence um, that being patient-centric isn't just the right thing to do, it is a business imperative. 
Um, and finally, to anyone that's listening and that are interested in making a change within their organisation but don't really know where to start, then just feel free to contact me. I love talking about patient centricity. It's my favourite thing. I'll talk to anyone and everyone about it. Um, so anything from just the, the smallest question to the biggest, how do I even start, to a specific project, I've been more than happy to help. Great passion for the topic, evidently. Sai, any final thoughts from you? I thought those were very good pointers and very practical pointers that Ross gave us, Alberto. Uh, in addition, or the only addition I would make is I see uh, the continuing involvement of technology uh, driving uh, patient centricity even further, you know, by empowering the patients more to participate in clinical trials through sensors and other technologies, as an example or maybe a little bit more forward-looking by patients ultimately becoming the custodians of their own healthcare data. And this is something that, in my humble opinion, will happen over the course of time. This continued digitization of our society will, in my opinion, continue to drive increased patient centricity and direct-to-patient involvement in the drug development process. Thank you, Sai. At this point, Roz will speak with Shannon Scarlett in our Patient Perspectives segment. Thanks, Alberto. I'm here today with Shannon Scarlett, a longtime Paraxel employee who is also a cancer survivor. So here at Paraxel, Shannon works with clients directly on our business operations team. And really for Shannon, her work life hit home when in 2017 she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and actually enrolled in a clinical trial. So today she's here to speak with me about her journey battling pancreatic cancer, what it was like to participate in the trial and also give an insider's perspective on how we can improve the patient experience. So Shannon, welcome. And thank you for taking time with me today. Thanks for having me, Roz. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Shannon, first of all, uh, can you share your journey of receiving a pancreatic cancer diagnosis with this and also how you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm doing great today. I'll start out with that. Um, I uh, was diagnosed in mid-2017. Um, honestly, after a brief um, uh, thought that I might have a stomach ulcer and it just was very different for me. And so I would say first and foremost, uh, you know, listening to your body is important. So, um, so through some, some scans and some diagnostic, uh, you know, adventures with the doctors, uh, they did a biopsy and found that I had a, a stage two pancreatic adenocarcinoma tumor, uh, located on the tail of my pancreas. Um, so, uh, and also uh, through that biopsy and some exploratory surgery found that I was a candidate for surgery. Uh, so um, when I went in to uh, talk through uh, the options with my doctor and the team, I had a full team, honestly, a radiologist, a, a surgical oncologist, and my oncologist. Um, they presented me with an option to uh, participate in a clinical trial. And so, you know, funny, I, I said, well, it's interesting, you guys know what I do for a living. And so that was interesting. I was I felt pretty, pretty informed, um, in general about clinical trials. So I felt like I had a, a kind of a step forward there. But um, I spent some time uh, talking to my family about the uh, option to participate in the trial and decided that that was something I wanted to do and felt like that gave me the best um, path forward for my treatment there. Mm -hmm. And how did the information that you provided by your team differ or indeed was it similar to the kind of information that you'd seen in your day job? So it was, um, 
it was pretty similar. And as a matter of fact, I felt um, even more empowered to ask questions about what the the goals were of the the trial. Um, you know, uh, I see those in protocols all the time when working through uh, my daily job. But um, so I felt like I could ask questions there and potential snags and what might keep me from participating in the trial. So I did feel that um, I, I was a pretty informed consumer um, and, and really got to ask a lot of great questions. Um, and also through my support system of coworkers, um, they gave me other things to ask. And so, again, I, I feel like, um, you know, having this job and being in this industry offered me really a lot of, uh, of information and um, things I might not have asked otherwise. And so I felt very prepared to participate. Mm-hmm. So if you think about your kind of average patient who doesn't work in our industry, mm-hmm. I'm assuming there'd probably be some kind of a, an information gap for them. Have you got any ideas about how we as an industry can help reduce that gap and improve the information for patients? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell you, when I first um, found out, you know, your brain kind of goes blank. And so uh, a close uh, coworker friend of mine said, well, you need to reach out to an advocacy group. And so I know this sounds, you know, like, oh, the advocacy group. But um, so I reached out to a, a pancreatic cancer advocacy group. And there's a few. Um, and honestly, I Googled and just found one. And that was mm-hmm. the beginning. Very, very important. Um, they were able to assist uh, with... Um, uh, providing how many uh, providers in my state uh, had a lot of experience. Uh, pancreatic cancer has can have some dismal outcomes. And so your best opportunity is to be with somebody who uh, deals with a lot of it, right? Sees it all the time. And so they were able to uh, provide me with providers in my area that see a lot of cases every year. Um, they sent me booklets on nutrition and health and clinical trials. They, you know, I am very aware of clintrials.gov because we utilize it in my, again, my daily job, but um, they are pretty adept at looking through there and helping find clinical trials. Now I, I had one to be on, but so I would say that, and I also joined uh, some social media support groups for patients themselves and found a whole range. Uh, there's a few folks in there who are very knowledgeable scientifically and therapy wise and treatment. And then there's some who have very limited knowledge and, and it's great to see the support that goes back and forth with um, ideas for, for people to, you know, research and, and, you know, advocate for themselves. I found that was the biggest thing is to be your biggest advocate, ask lots of questions and, and do some research there. So I would say the advocacy group itself was a very big help and probably something that would be, a place to, you know, disseminate information. Um, so. And aside from the information that you got via the advocacy group, um, how did you make your decision to participate in a trial? What kind of factors did you take into account? So, you know, I'll say some of it was gut. Um, because of the particular outcomes for this disease um, and the type of trial I was going to participate in, the doctor said, um, you know, there is not a clear path he could offer that this was one choice. And then, and then there was a standard of treatment. So uh, the clinical trial or the standard of treatment. And, and so it was a little unnerving. I'm somebody who likes to be sort of told, you know, especially from my medical provider, although I do trust them explicitly, and he's a, an expert in the field. Um, I was a little disappointed at first to be told that I had to make this decision. But but later, I was glad that that, that was the case. So, so honestly, um, I did some Googling. I tried to stay on, um, you know, known medical and university sites to stay away from all the kind of crazy information online. But, and I just went back and forth and I said, you know, I think, um, 
I'm, I felt healthy, uh, given my diagnosis, regardless of that, I felt healthy and I felt like the clinical trial offered the more aggressive approach. So uh, honestly, that it was a, it was a, a decision with my husband and I as to what I felt would give me the best opportunity to, to get rid of this thing. So, And once you joined the study, were there, was there anything about the process of being in a trial that was particularly easy or anything that was particularly challenging that mm-hmm. you can think mm-hmm. of? I did not feel like participating in the trial was a burden um, at, at all. In fact, I found it to be the opposite. Um, there was a, a site coordinator who became like immediately attached to my um, chart and and was available to me to call, to email, uh, all sorts of things. Um, she assisted not only with side effects and treatment and was able to give me, hey, you know, we've had other patients who had this effect, so take this nausea med before this kind of thing. And so could give me kind of insight into um, how to mitigate the, the side effects. She also advocated when there was a small insurance issue, um, it got resolved, but you know, so she was very, um, very attached. And, and I found that having that connection um, was excellent. Uh, my facility that I went to was great otherwise. But, but having that additional level of the clinical trial coordinator to talk to about anything was excellent. As a matter of fact, um, just this year, I participated in a, in a uh, charity walk for my cancer, and she was there. And so we walked the whole thing together. Coincidentally, we ran into each other. So that was kind of cool that we, you know, I still felt pretty close to her. But, Aww, that's um, so nice. But absolutely. Yeah. Um, having her involved was invaluable. Absolutely. And as well as the um, the nurse that you were talking about, did you continue to leverage the advocacy groups and the online communities while you were in the study? So as well as making a decision when you're in the study, did you kind of lean on them for support as well? Or was it mostly your family and friends? No, I did lean on the online group uh, quite a lot, as a matter of fact. Um, one of the groups I was in, I, I've, I've I'm in two, and one is for um, patients and their caregivers or, or family and friends, and then one is patients only, and I found that to be really the best one, the patient only, that um, so much information about how to deal with side effects or new studies coming out or trials people are, are thinking about joining. So I really found that to be a place that I continue to go even now with uh, my current uh, no evidence of disease status. I still visit those sites um, just to learn more about um, digestive health and and trip you know t- uh, tricks to deal with the side effects now that you know you still deal with from from different chemotherapies and and so on. And do you tend to see similar questions and concerns from other patients in the community as well as that sharing of information? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so. So, like I said, the, in the groups, I found a pretty small minority of folks who have a, a great deal of knowledge about sort of the scientific basis for clinical trials and, you know, what the phases are and, and that sort of thing. And and a lot of folks who have misconceptions about clinical trials and what they can offer or can't offer and when it is good to join one and that kind of thing and, and how they can get into them. And so the really great thing is to have the folks that feel pretty confident um, offer suggestions to to check out the advocacy groups, to check out clintrials.gov, to talk to different doctors, get sick in opinions. Um, and really, again, you know, be an advocate for themselves. That's that's a really big thing that we push a lot is um, that while we love and trust our caregivers and our doctors and um, need to feel comfortable with them, that ultimately, um, you know, pushing for your own health and your own treatment options is very, very important. Okay. 
Very interesting. Thank you. Um, so earlier in the podcast, I was actually discussing with some of my colleagues some of the innovative approaches to clinical trials that have started to look to improve the experience for patients. So looking particularly at virtual trials, for example, where all or part of the trial can be delivered for the patient in their home rather than them having to go into the clinic for every visit. Um, so what do you think of the potential of those, maybe in oncology, but also in other disease areas too? <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's pretty interesting. So a couple things. So in my group, you know, it, um, pancreatic cancer is not considered a rare disease per se, but it, it has a, a lower incidence than some other cancers. Um, and there is a lot that um, is still trying to be figured out about it. A lot of treatments have not been successful and, and so on and so forth. So one of the things that I think would be great is to be able to offer more kinds of um um, testings and screenings and clinical trial sort of uh, uh, kind of DNA matches w at home and honestly for this for my disease group but but for many of them um, people aren't near major medical centers uh, in my group some of them have to travel a long way to get to their local oncologist who is not even a pancreatic cancer specialist per se right and so I think the opportunity to participate all or part you know from, from your own area would be excellent, an excellent choice. Um, I think it could also increase the, you know, the patient population within the clinical trials. I know some of them, we have a, a it's hard to get people into them, basically. And, and I see that at work and I see that on my support groups as well. So I think any opportunity to ease patient participation is, is going to be a boon for my disease particularly, but, but many other ones as well. Um, just, you know, having that um, availability to, to participate without having necessarily to be near that center or travel. Interesting. Thank you. And is there anything else in relation to your experience in um, a clinical trial that you'd like to share with everybody today that you think would be particularly interesting or useful? Um, well, you know, I, you know, I think probably really the thing that came out of it for me was, um, was the was having an advocate on the other side having that having that clinical trial coordinator for me was really the most important thing um and and I felt that 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 was probably the best part of the clinical trial uh, and for me personally hopefully contributing to finding a way to um you know towards better treatment for my disease but but was kind of the best outcome okay Wonderful. Thank you, Shannon. You've been an absolute superstar. It's been really great discussion and I appreciate the insight you've given both into the patient experience and also what we can do as an industry to help support patients. So thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, thank you, Raz. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening. This has been the Paracel podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on paraxcel.com, Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. Previous episodes have tackled topics of women in STEM, rare disease drug development, and working with the FDA. We hope you will listen more. This is Alberto Grignolo. Goodbye. <laughs>